Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Hey, Tom, you must have mixed emotions this week. I mean, on the one hand, our Detroit Lions are headed to the NFC Championship game. On the other hand, Jim Harbaugh is leaving the Michigan Wolverines. So how are you feeling? Are you just like all twisted up in knots? Well, you forgot the third hand, which is that he, before exiting, delivered a national championship to my beloved Wolverines. So yeah. um, had he left two years ago without getting us to the mountaintop, I think I would have been fully bitter. Now it's like something happened that I literally thought I would never live to see the day that a team could compete in the modern college football environment like Michigan and win. So, uh, yeah, that's good. And um, this Lions thing has to be a fever dream because there's no way this is true. Yeah, <laughs> it does seem that way. We've been waiting a long time. Yes. Um, but, hey, you know, for the 99.8% of our listeners who could care less about Michigan sports uh maybe let's get on to the episode what do you say i i said that's a good idea hopefully they'll uh, have interest in the other topic too the yeah topic let's hope hand. yeah exactly so uh we're gonna talk about uh, i don't know these weaving a few different concepts together i guess is the best way to put it i mean talk about um the the power of narrow focus uh in terms of building your legal practice and um we'll talk about niche and and really having a specific expertise within a narrow domain and how that gives us power in the attorney client relationship um which which is important for reasons we'll discuss um so let's let's dive in there um i thought tom before we get to i i just for our listeners sake i mean the way we usually do these episodes is um, you know, either Tom or I will kind of develop a, a bit of a bullet point outline for these discussions and send it, you know, one person will send it to the other. And when that happens, you know, one of us tends to act a little bit more as the person who's kind of teeing up these points. And then the person who developed the outline will, will, uh, will kind of go into some of those points. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the sausage gets made a little bit. Um, <laughs> in this case, I'm going to start with something off script here, Tom, because I think it's important because I actually actually wrote about this topic generally in my newsletter last week, um, at least a, a related topic. And I always whenever I talk about niche and narrow focus, you know, inevitably get some questions about like, well, what what about, you know, not not everyone needs to have a niche, right? I mean, there's a role for generalists and and it's not the only way to build a practice. And I, I believe that's absolutely true. I mean, I'm a I'm a fan of having a specific focus. I think there's a lot of benefits to it, which we'll get into some of those today. Um, but I totally acknowledge that a significant number of lawyers who build, you know, profitable and and uh, successful legal practices are more akin to a generalist um, than they are like a niche specialist. So there's no one right way to do this. I think that there's just some unique benefits to a niche that are worth exploring. And the way I think about it generally is as follows. I mean, there's a few phases to building a legal practice. I think it's building a specialization in any area of professional services. Um, and, and phase one is when you're early in your career and and you should be more of a generalist early in your career, trying out lots of different things, building broad experience and expertise in different domains 
practices, you know, getting exposure to different industries that you serve, all that kind of stuff. It's it's an experiment experimentation phase in many ways. And then, you know, I think over time, many uh, of us go through then a phase two, which is a little bit more about, um, I guess, evaluation is probably the best way to put it, where you're you're taking some of the lessons you learned during the phase one experimentation phase and and distilling those down and maybe at that point developing a more cohesive strategy as to how you want to proceed moving forward. And then ultimately, you know, and say that's like your sort of mid-level associate, maybe junior partner. And then ultimately, you know, phase three is all about like discernment, doubling down on what's working for you. I mean, if you're going to go narrow with a niche, like this is really when you're doing it. Um, and, and I, you know, in general, that I think for many of us, that's kind of the the route we go. You're not going to have a niche from day one. You shouldn't try to, in most cases, unless you're like a mechanical engineer who's doing IP work um, in that area. But for most of us, you know, it is this process. It's a journey. It's it's not a destination per se. Um, and things can change over time. So I just want to get that out of the way as a starting point, because, you know, and if you don't follow those exact phases, you still can succeed. We're just offering up one possible route for moving forward in a more narrow way. Um, does that make sense, Tom? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And yeah. the, the one objection that maybe you didn't address that I'll just talk about really quickly is the the notion that you resist being a specialist because you might be missing out on opportunities that are out there, mm -hmm. um, which I think, you know, we've talked about is sort of counter to actually how niching actually works, mm -hmm. um, kind of works in the reverse. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on the topic of how this uh, creates power for mm -hmm. the person. Who, and so because the power is what um, I think generalists are easily replaceable, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot more generalists. And so finding the difference between one or another is kind of hard. So sometimes you're competing on price. Um, what we're talking about is becoming so specialist that you are known as the person in a given domain. And there's really no reason to search anywhere else or to go finding a better solution. So um, yeah. maybe you can discuss what you mean by the power that comes from it. Cause I think that might turn some, some, some heads and, you know, perk up some ears. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to deviate from that question again. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just lay a little bit more groundwork, but I want to okay. get to that. And I think that was a good foundation because yeah, I mean, when I said power, some people might've been scratching their heads as to what that means exactly. And, and we're going to define what that means in the attorney client relationship. Um, but I thought maybe real quick, Tom, we could talk about like, all right, what do we need mean by when we say niche or niche? Uh, and what we're talking about there is, narrow specialization, right? Instead of being the jack of all trades, you're sort of the master craftsman, craftsman who specializes in one area. Um, and there's a few different ways to go about it. Um, and, and the reason I think this is uh, valuable for some of us is because I think in the marketplace across different domains, like consumers of all kinds of products and services are increasingly looking for specialization, something that solves their specific problem. Um, and so when it comes to carving out a niche, there's a couple ways to think about it. One is horizontally, right? Horizontal generally equates to a practice area that you specialize in. So this would be someone who is a commercial litigator. Um, the other way to think about it is industry uh, specialization, which is often called vertical niche, right? Where someone might be doing 
somewhat more general services, like you're doing business law for dentists, right? Business law is very wide, encompasses many different services within the practice of law. Um, you may be doing all kinds of different things, employment law, you might be doing um, you know, their corporate work, all that kind of stuff, but you have a specialization for a particular industry. Um, I, I think that oftentimes the most powerful niche is one that blends those two areas. So you have both horizontal practice and vertical industry specialization. And a good example of that, and we won't go too deeply into it, but we did a podcast episode, we've done a couple, but um, one in particular, our most recent one with Philip Russell from Ogletree Deacons. Philip, if you're listening, which you often do, hello. Mm -hmm. um, and Philip talked about his blended vertical and horizontal positioning as an OSHA lawyer, you know, a niche within a niche in employment law. Uh, for the construction industry. So he's really combining those two things. And if you go back and listen to that episode, which we'll link up to in the show notes, Philip talks a lot about how that became really powerful for him as he was um, accelerating the growth of his practice. Um, so those are those are some ways to think about it. Um, but I, now with that, all of that foundation laid, let's get to the issue at hand, which is, all right, Harbaugh. what does it mean? What does it mean in terms of generating power in the uh, in the attorney-client relationship by having a niche? And um, I think uh, what that entails is things that you alluded to, Tom. Um, you have oftentimes greater pricing power. You're oftentimes not subject to like RFP processes. You have the ability to say no to non-ideal fit clients because as a result of your specialization um, and the uh, demand for your services, I oftentimes like to use this rule of thumb. If you are the sort of the ideal um, scenario is generating 20 percent demand beyond your capacity to supply that demand, which puts you in an enviable position, which is to pick and choose your clientele a bit more than the generalist who may be counting on, you know, like every opportunity comes in the door um, because they don't have as steady of a of a inflow of opportunities. So um, so there is that dynamic. And what we're talking about here is sort of this polite battle for control. It even even gets into the practice of law where, you know, the the person who's seen as the go-to expert, the real specialist in the um, in the field, is often to is often deferred to as far as like making strategic decisions, right? They're, like the client is looking for this person's specific expertise because they have the reputation as the go-to expert, and um, they're not in an order taker uh, scenario. They're they're driving the strategy, and the client is deferring to them in that sense, in, in terms of really respecting their advice as a trusted advisor. And anyone who's practiced law knows what it's like to be in a position where a client is just like, you know, a difficult client who does not take the advice of the lawyer, who is um, sort of demeaning to the lawyer and and sees them as just a mere vendor versus that trusted advisor. Um, that is an imbalance of power where you don't want to find yourself and and having a niche, I think, can help to even that out. Yeah, I actually here's here's a plug time. So I actually wrote about this phenomenon in my book, The Fatal Flaw, which is a fiction book, but the lead character is the, in a creative agency. So I've experienced this myself firsthand. I've never been a lawyer, but even in the creative world, you know, you get hired for your creativity or your expertise and applying creativity to a certain 
you know, area of discipline. And the good client says that oh, you're the expert. The difficult client second guesses, rewrites, challenges the whole strategy, starts over. And um, the character in my book calls the soul sucking work. So I'll just leave that there. You can, yeah. you know, either see what you will with that Rosart blot. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. Because I, initially I thought you were talking about power in the business development phase of a client relationship, but you're talking mm -hmm. about that extending throughout the the relationship that you have with the client. And I think that's a great position to be in when somebody says, uh, well, what do you think, Jay? What do you think we should do? And then you tell them and they say, you're the expert, right? You yeah. don't get that if you're just the generalist order taker. Yeah, many times you don't. I mean, that's why what I was saying, like you're oftentimes not subjected to an RFP process. I mean, what's an RFP process geared to do? It's to find like the competent lowest cost provider. And in that case, to, to carry out a specific task as defined through the RFP itself in many cases. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the instances where there's something much more high stakes and consequential at issue, there's no RFP, right? Um, mm -hmm. We oftentimes use the analogy of like the healthcare space, right? Where you, ha you have a cold, you go to your general practitioner, you have you know some light, light life-threatening um, cardiac issue, you get on a plane and fly to find the best surgeon in the country. Um, and, and that sort of dynamic plays out in the sort of high stakes, highly consequential legal work that is at issue too, that, that's not gonna be subject to an RFP process. So yeah, the power dynamic is real and you wanna get yourself in a position where you have, you, know, a, you, you sort of tip the scales of power in your favor as a result of having that stellar reputation. Um, now, I want to I want to take a step back though, and also discuss the how how we get there, right? I mean, it's it's easy to say it's not it's not like you're gonna change your LinkedIn you know headline and say, okay, now I'm a niche specialist in this area, and all of these benefits are gonna start to <laughs> flow towards you. That that's not the case at all. I mean. The, the benefit, one of the benefits of, of having a niche or one of the promises of having a niche is that by continuing to maintain a focus in a specific domain and area of expertise, you're able to sort of compound your, your niche in a way that leads to these benefits, right? So this, this compounding effect, you know, the, what Einstein allegedly, that's what the internet says, um, called the eighth wonder of the world, the power of compounding, where the more you invest in something, the more powerful it becomes. And, you know, we've all heard of the concept of um, compounding in, in personal finance, but I think that dynamic, that that eighth wonder of the world plays out everywhere, including in our in our practices. Um, and and it, it compounds in different ways. I mean, when you think about it, you know, when you have a niche, and you're serving a particular industry, doing a specific area of practice. I mean, your relationships compound because you're seeing the same people. You know, you're attending the same conferences. Uh, you're in the middle of that world. You're in the midst of it. So you have the power to compound those relationships because you're having re repeated exposure to those people. It, same goes for your knowledge, right? You're instead of bouncing from area to area, industry to industry, you're really learning the business and the industry that you're serving. You're really learning the area of practice that you're focused in in a way that the generalist can't. Um, your content creation, right? You're you're publishing in the same, you know, outside publications. You're thinking about the same issues. You're contextualizing that content for 
the same audience that compounds over time. And, and as a result, your reputation compounds. Word of mouth referrals uh, start to come your way. In, opportunities are are coming inbound to you because of that reputation. Like all of these things happen um, through the power of compounding. But the problem is compounding takes time, right? We know that. And, and the biggest gains come at the end. Um, so you have to be sort of disciplined and, and go all in on this type of approach in order to get those benefits. Um, there's that, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Tom, but there's a famous thought experiment that kind of exposes um, the fact that our intuition as to the, the the power of compounding is oftentimes off, right? We we don't we it's it's hard for us to understand and appreciate um, what compounding really means. And and the thought experiment is the magic penny, um, mm. which you may have heard of, but it's basically where you know the the experiment went where a bunch of people were asked the following question, which is. Um, if I was to give you a million dollars right now, or this magic penny that doubles in value every day for the next 30 days, what would you take? And as you might guess, most people opted for the million dollars now because they didn't realize that the compounding of that one penny for 30 days would result in over $7 million. Um, so, you know, the gains are massively above. But the interesting thing is, you know, at day 20 in that compounding journey of that magic penny, I, I believe that the value was like less than $50,000 at that point. So again, there's there's all of the gains uh, or many of the gains are com the biggest ones, at least are coming at the end, which leads people oftentimes not to to uh, experience them. Right. Uh, you you need to stick with it. You need to have a discipline focus on this. It, it doesn't take forever. Um, but it does take time. And so as a result of that, you have to invest in your niche in order to experience uh, that compounding. Um, otherwise, you'll violate the first rule of compounding, which Charlie Munger said was don't interrupt it. So mm -hmm. in any event, I, I think that, that that helps explain why, you know, this this can be valuable, but as a result, why you really have to be, you know, kind of go all in on it and stick with it. Otherwise, you know, if you if you focus on a niche for a year, it's probably not enough for you to get the benefits. Yep. I, remember, I would say that's good advice just relative to just marketing in general or advertising mm -hmm. or brand building, all of it. Um, I wish I could remember. All right, you're the quote master. I'll put you on the spot. Someone said something to the effect of that most failures happen right before success was about to be realized or something like that. Um yeah, I think that was Aristotle. No, was just it? kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, oh, I, you know, but this is a good time to you brought up quotes. So I heard this term the other day. So this is a this is a good quote, or at least it's a good coined phrase, which is called Churchillian drift. And you may already by the name of it know where I'm headed, but it's basically like on the internet, you know, all all quotes start to drift towards Churchill. And you could add Ben Franklin, Aristotle, Mark Twain, um, and Mark Twain, and a few others to them. But it's there, there's actually a, a term for that, which I kind of love, which is called Churchillian drift.
I loved it. I love that. Yeah. 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 So I, I was just going to, you know, my own anecdotal experience, just for, you know, in terms of marketing, I think people want to see results more quickly than is actually genuinely possible. And I, I think back to my, do you remember the first time you decided to take a deduction out of your paycheck and put it into a 401k? Yeah. It was like, you know, you're poor, you're young. I was stupid. I was going to say you're stupid, stupid. <laughs> and you say, you know, $69 got taken out of my measly paycheck. And it's so now I have $69 and 12 cents in an account that I'm not going to even be able to touch until I'm 65 ish. Right. What a drag. And mm -hmm. then you did it again the next time. And that pen, that magic penny doubled. Right. Yep. And then the next time it, you know, so just remember that mindset. Cause now when you get old, like you, Jay, you can look back yep. and say, okay, now there's something of significance there. If you kept at it, if you interrupted it, like you said, then you, you will missed a bunch of opportunities the same is true of marketing like you need to have the patience to let it work yeah same thing for niching yeah totally and i think the you know the the biggest the biggest thing i would point to like the biggest compounding effect of concentration or narrow focus i think is in knowledge right i think that's the biggest thing that we we can take away from this which is probably something everyone can appreciate it's like you know if you think about any any professional service, but practice of law here, um, you know, the ability to move past like, okay, I've got to go look up the statute. What does it say? And I, you, and you, you experience this as a lawyer, as you're sort of getting exposed to different areas of the law, you're constantly just like trying to master the basics enough to like get the job done. But there's, in most people's experience, you get to a point where you've mastered the basics and then you're going to the next level and you can start to think creatively about solutions because you kind of know the basics cold. And then there's another level beyond that and beyond that. And it's just like, it never ends, but until you continue to start ascending that ladder of, of knowledge where certain things just become instinctive, right? The basics and where you can truly start thinking creatively because you're not wasting time, energy, and resources on like getting up to speed. Um, that's where it really gets powerful. And I think, you know, a, a service provider, um, a provider of expert solutions can really take things to the next level. But, you know, that knowledge compounding takes takes time again. It's like, if you don't, it, it's, it's like time plus discipline equals the opportunity here. Yeah. Well, and as Winston Churchill once said, knowledge is power. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually that's Francis Bacon. So I, I looked it up because I, okay. that's got, that's a lie too. Often attributed to Thomas Jefferson, but yes, knowledge yeah. is power. But the, I mean, the upshot of that is actually true. And it's what you just said, right? Yeah, absolutely. And let's Tom, let's spend a few minutes just talking about some real world examples. We've been talking about the sort of the, you know, these, these issues in theory, but let's point to some examples of this happening in the real world. Um, one of the, you know, it, in terms of having, you know, this, this reputation that allows you to have power in the, in the relationship between a service provider and a client. And, and one of my favorites, and there's a YouTube video where he discusses this interaction. And it's also um, highlighted in Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, um, where after Steve Jobs gets pushed out of Apple um, and he goes and starts Next, which was a computer company um, that he founded after after leaving Apple the first time, um, and he needed a logo 
for the company. And he, so he, uh, so he went out and he wanted to find the, you know, the best logo designer in the world. Cause as we all know, Steve jobs really cares about aesthetics and brand and whatnot. So Paul Rand, uh, it was widely regarded as, you know, the best logo designer in the world. And so jobs went to him and they, this, you know, Paul Rand said, okay, I'll design you a logo. That'll be a hundred thousand dollars. And this would have been I guess in the maybe late seventies, even maybe early eighties, it's a lot, you know, for a logo. And so, um, as Steve Jobs recalled it, uh, he said, "I asked him if he would provide a few options for me, uh, you know, which is co commonly the case, right? But the, we're in creative services, you know, you sometimes you end up doing twenty different iterations of a logo for a client, and, and they're still not happy." But uh, Paul Rand's response to Steve Jobs was. No, I, I will solve your problem and you will pay me. And so he didn't, he wasn't going to provide options. He was going to design a logo and, he, and it, that was going to be the logo that Jobs used. And sort of Paul Rand had such power in the relationship that he sort of dictated that to Steve Jobs, who's famously like the most difficult person in the world to work with. And Jobs said, okay. And that was the logo he used and he paid him his $100,000. And oh. I think that that little anecdote just shows, you know, an, an example of really a service provider who's got tremendous power and leverage, Paul Rand could have cared less. He, If Jobs had said, no, I need options, he would have said, well, you go find another designer. You're not for me. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, I've almost never respond to the RFP process that you brought up earlier. And mm -hmm. so my own personal, personal anecdote is I want, I think, I don't know how many, but every RFP that I've ever won, it, it was because I opted not to respond to the RFP. Mm -hmm. So um, I did it on a Lark once. This company, pretty large company, sent an RFP. I wasn't even sure how they got our name. And I called the guy and I said, uh, hey, I, I can't respond to this RFP. Thank you for sending it to me. And he's like, well, why not? I said, well, it's it's missing, like, I think three key important things. And it's this and this and this. And he said, oh, I didn't even think of those things. I'm like, yeah, did you, there's these other two things. It's like, wow, you're right. He said, well, would you send me a proposal for that? And I did, and I was the only one that sent him a proposal for the things that were not included in the RFP. So that's yeah. maybe a real world way that you can play uh, Paul Rand without, you know, I, I, I never try to be flipping about it and say, like, mm -hmm. that's all wrong. You just say, I appreciate the opportunity, but um, there's a couple of things that I see missing that you might want to add. And so usually no one else is doing that. Usually everyone else is yeah. all right, saying, all right, what can we win this business and at what price, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. It, that's a great example. I mean, that's... I, and I've done the same thing too, right? Like the, it's like, again, the client, if you, if you're an expert and you, and you truly believe that and you've, you've earned that status, well, then oftentimes, you know, why would you respond to an RFP where you don't think that the proposed approach of the client is, is effective, is going to be effective. Um, like call them up and have a conversation, yeah. um, you know, replace the RFP with a conversation and see where it goes. Cause odds are like, if you are an expert, you're probably not going to win on price, which is again, what most are looking for with an RFP, but if you can reframe things and say like, yeah, I, I see where you're going with this, but you know, here's in my experience, here's a, perhaps a better approach and, and you'd be ready for a, you know, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't um, be a little bit indifferent about it. Uh, that confidence can go a long way towards them, you know, thinking of you uh, as, as like the right option for that job.
Yeah, and the fact of the matter is if they're not the expert that you have become, there's no way that they could even write the RFP correctly. Mm -hmm. They just don't have the expertise. So there's your opportunity to prove expertise without even responding to the RFP. And you add value. I mean, even if if he would have said, oh, all right, thanks. Well, I'm going to add that stuff and resend the RFP out. I probably wouldn't have responded, but he didn't. He immediately saw the value that I was creating or at least the expertise that I had and said, this this one, this guy might be the right for the job, you know, so. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the other dynamics I've seen uh, too. It, it, we're talking about the pitching process. I mean, there are instances where you are in a competitive process and, and there's no way you can get around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one way to, one way to get around it a bit is like, instead of doing what everyone else is doing in, in like a pitch process where you get invited in, you get 30 minutes in front of the executive team, you know, general counsel's there. Um, the, the typical way to go is prepare a PowerPoint deck, you know, bunch of credentials. Here's a bunch of case studies of similar things we've done. Here's our team. Like go in as the confident expert and start showing them what it'd be like to work with you. Like take control of the room and say like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, we're not going to do a PowerPoint deck here. Like let's, let's dig in and start talking about this challenge you're facing and essentially audition what it's like to work with you and yeah. and take control of the, of the scenario. You don't have to play by people's rules. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of an expert is you, you can deviate you can and should deviate from the rules when they don't make sense and they don't allow you to showcase what's unique and differentiated about you. I love that idea. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. A couple more stories, I think just to kind of drive. Can I just, home. can yeah, I add ahead. one thing to that? Cause it just dawned on me. Yeah. Um, as the expert, this is gonna, if you are the expert going into that pitch, doing it your own way is going to be really, really easy. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, you walk in, you're not overprepared. So you didn't spend six hours the night before on your pitch, right? Doing the, make sure the PowerPoint looked pretty, right? Yep. You didn't have to do all of this research to, you know, get smart on the topic, right? It's, it's almost like cheating when you're the expert, you just show up and you do what you said and say, all right, well, let's talk about this problem and let's start solving it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I love that. Yeah, totally. No, it's, it's the way to go in many cases. I mean, you know, it, you're, you're taking a risk, but again, what's the, what's the, what's the bigger risk? Just like trying to fit in like everybody else. I think that. Well, it's not a risk if you have that abundance mindset that you always talk Mm -hmm. about, right? Is that Mm -hmm. like, you don't need this job. Hopefully you don't need that gig to pay the mortgage that month. Right. But you've got to be constantly doing business development. So the opportunities Mm -hmm. are plentiful. And then you have this abundance mindset and you do go into that meeting with like, it's okay. If I lose this, I'm going to lose it the right way, or I'm going to win it the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. That's where the, that's where having the, you know, again, that getting back to what, like you said, the demand that exceeds your supply gives you confidence to, to do things differently and uh, walk away from situations that aren't ideal. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, I, I wanted to next talk about a, a story uh, about Joe Flom and I, I'm sure I've talked about Joe Flom on the podcast before. Um, so he was, uh, he was the person who drove the growth of Skadden, uh, which is where I started my career. Um, interesting aside, I don't know if I've ever told this story though. Uh, when we had our first year associate retreat, everyone everyone gathered in New York. It was like, I don't know, probably 200 first year associates coming from all the offices around the world. And um, I, I went in, I think it was a Wednesday night. We were there. It was like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, retreat, maybe a couple months after we started. And, um, so a bunch of us went out in New York city on Wednesday night 
uh, we might have had a little too much to uh, <laughs> to drink. And I remember feeling a little rough the next morning. So I kind of found a seat in the back of the conference, big conference room we were in. And, um, you know, I someone plops down in the seat next to me and I look over and it's none other than Joe Flom. I think at the time he was like in his late 80s. He's still coming to the office in a suit every day and was like, I mean, I, you know, I was freaked out because I figured I still reeked of alcohol, <laughs> but, uh, but it all went okay. Um, but that was my one in-person experience or run in with him. He was very nice and we chatted and, um, in any event, but the story I wanted to tell about Mr. Flom was, uh, early in his career. And this story is told in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, um, you know, he he and his colleagues at Skadden um, were a scrappy young startup firm. And they were all the white shoe Wall Street law firms um, already established, like in the 1950s and 60s uh, in New York. And so uh, Skadden uh, was was definitely, you know, one a firm that kind of had to find its way. And the way the 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 path it found was engineered by Joe Flom, where he started doing work that many of the bigger Wall Street firms found distasteful, which was the early stages of what became known as hostile takeovers um, mm. in in you know with large transactions, often fueled by leveraged buyouts, and so Joe Flom became an expert in that area, and then that became you know fast forward to like the 1970s and 80s, like that became the biggest area of of transactional legal work um, that existed. And so as a result of having that head start where he really developed his niche as an expert in that area, um, you know, he was he was one of a handful of go-to lawyers in that space. And and the point here is that there, there became this um this practice by companies of hiring SCAD and, and Joe Flom in particular in with a technique that became known as sterilizing Joe. And the point was they weren't even necessarily using Flom and and Skadden for anything. All they wanted to do was create a conflict such that a company that was going to come in and try to do a hostile takeover couldn't hire him to do the hostile mm. takeover and represent them in that process. So, you know, he was such a renowned expert and had such control and power in the relationship that they were they were literally just hiring him just solely to create a conflict and paying Scadden a bunch of money in the process. So uh, that that story kind of became famous. And and as you know, he his stature rose and the aura around him rose, but it, it even, they coined that phrase, sterilizing Joe in the process. So I think that's another kind of ex extreme example of what it means to have power where clients will hire you, even though, even though they don't plan on using you, they just want to prevent you from representing someone else who might be adverse to them. Yeah, that's the uh, the case study in in the extreme for sure. Yeah, and then last one, um, another lawyer from a, a similar era uh, with a, a bit of a similar story um, is Marty Lipton, who was one of the um, one of the founders of Wachtell, uh, which is now you know which is which has been for many years considered like the ultimate boutique. Well, they're not really a boutique anymore, but I guess you could call them boutique relative to their competitors, but in the transactional space on Wall Street. Um, and and there's a story about Marty Lipton uh, told by his partner, Howard Nussbaum, who went on to be a lawyer and, and part of the Clinton administration. Um, and there was a dispute early on in the 
in the uh, early years of the firm, and it was the firm's biggest client. And they had a dispute over strategy. Again, this is a, this is an example of like there's a power dynamic within the attorney-client relationship during a representation, not just in the business development process. Yeah. Um, that's important. And and Lipton had a, a strategic dispute over the direction uh, of a of a matter with this client who, as Nussbaum tells it was represented around 40% of the firm's revenue. So this was no small client. And ultimately Lipton fired the client and Nussbaum, you know, went to him and said, what the hell are you doing? Mm -hmm. And, um, and as, as he tells it, uh, Lipton said, uh, first of all, he just laughed and he said, it's okay. You know, we'll be fine. We're going to, we'll do it. We'll end up doing better next year than this year. And, and Nussbaum said, and of course that was true. Um, and, this is another example of the power dynamic where it's like, there will be more opportunities. Um, you don't need to sacrifice your integrity and your, you know, your work-life uh, balance to such a great extent. If you have the confidence through having an established niche and reputation such that you'll have a steady inflow of work, the compounding will continue. You'll have opportunities and you can have that power in the relationship to say, you know what? You know, this isn't working out, or um, this isn't the right client in the first place, and I'm going to pass on it. And that that oftentimes is something that many lawyers struggle. They feel like they have to say yes. They feel like they have to acquiesce to client demands in all instances. The client's always right. You know that that sort of notion, and that not necessarily the case when you really develop that stellar niche reputation. Yep. Absolutely. Those are great stories. And I would just say if there's, you know, any skeptics out there, because, you know, we've cited examples that include Steve Jobs and, you know, these big, huge, <laughs> yeah. go back and listen to that. Um, uh, Russell, what I'm sorry, uh, Philip Russell, Russell episode, yep. because mm -hmm. he's an attorney who's, you know, I don't want to call him middle age, but he's not like, he, he's not telling stories from 50 years ago. He's doing it now. He will mm -hmm. share with you the results very transparently. Um, and to me, that's as big of an inspiration as any. So I would encourage people to go back and listen to that episode. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are, these are sort of, uh, in some cases, well-known, uh, certainly individuals, in the space, they're you know they're at the they're at the tail end of their compounding in many of these cases. So they've got they've got the extreme power that they can do some of these things. They get hired just to prevent them from representing someone else. They feel the confidence to walk away from a client. I would say this though. I mean, in in many of these cases, like these decisions were made early on. This this story I told about Marty Lipton, that wasn't the walk tell you know today. That was way back, you know, at right. the firm's founding. Um, and and still that confidence based on, um, you know, reputation and expertise that there would be opportunities moving forward uh, that he made that decision. So in any event, uh, but it's a great point. I mean, there are, there are lots of practical examples of this now that you're sort of aware of this dynamic that I'm sure exists within your own firm and maybe your own practice. So seek those out as well. Yep. And my final thought is this, which is um, never compare your beginning to somebody else's middle. Winston Churchill. <laughs> I don't know who said it, but uh, I think, I think like, that, I, you know, I think said that Tom Nixon, because I mean, there's some there's a quote just like that. <laughs> but I don't know if it's the middle. Yeah, you might have come up with that part. Yeah. 
No, I think that is because it's in my uh, Michael Hyatt uh, Daily Planner. So it okay. always struck me as why didn't he say somebody's end? Yeah, but I, yeah. I think he's talking about you know the reason sure. it's middle is because yeah they're somewhere in their destination too. They may be ahead of you, but they're yeah. not at the end, and you're not to where they are yet. So yeah, anyways. no, you're right. That does make sense. It it must have been Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mark Twain said, Jay, it's time to end this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good, Tom. All right. Well, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.